Welcome to the Eventful Entrepreneur. My name's Dodge. I've been an entrepreneur for over 30 years and thrown thousands of parties across the UK. And I'm also the owner of the Bournemouth Sevens Festival. Everyone who knows me knows I love people, having a laugh <laughs> and asking lots of questions. So I've been chatting to people with one thing in common. They've all lived eventful lives. This week, I'm delving into the eventful life of Elliot Gleave, a.k.a. Example. Elliot is a number one best-selling musician, singer, rapper, songwriter and record producer. He's had a massively successful career span in 17 years and of course, he's a former Bournemouth Sevens headliner. We chat about how he got his big break, dealing with fame, what it's like touring the world and how the decline in radio plays is changing how artists get noticed. Elliot is so open and honest about the numbers, financials and inner workings of the music industry. The chat is a proper peek behind the showbiz curtain. If you want to hear more like this, do us a favour and subscribe to this podcast. And if you want to get in contact with me, you can contact me via Instagram at Dodge Woodall. I reply to every message. Here he is, the man himself, Example. Elliot, welcome to the show, mate. Nice to see a friendly face. <laughs> Good stuff. Let's, uh, let's get cracking. Let's roll all the way back. Where did you grow up and how did you get into the, uh, the music industry? Actually, I grew up around the corner from here about five minutes from here next to, near Craven Cottage, uh, Fulham. Uh, I went to school in Wandsworth. I, uh, I never actually thought I'd make music. I wanted to be a film director or an actor. Okay. And um, it was actually the, um, it was actually a school that shaped me, I think, in terms of music. Like, my, my, like I grew up, in, I didn't grow up in a musical house. My mum and dad didn't play instruments. My dad had a very good singing voice. He was always singing around the house. He had an old vinyl player, so he'd always have like, Rolling Stones or Motown on, or he loved the Kinks. He'd have Pavarotti on yes. and be singing Ness and Dorma, Ness. you know. <laughs> <laughs> my dad has he's got a very big booming voice yeah. like me. So maybe, and he's always, he was always, my dad was a really good um, marketing and sales exec. He did really well, um, you know, retired in his 50s. And, you know, having come from a, a working class background where he'd been kicked out of school. So um, I think I not only got, my early introductions into music from him and, and my mum as well. Um, she was always, when I was a kid, feel the beat, feel the beat. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's probably where the rhythm side of things yeah. comes from. Um, but my dad was, um, he was he was very streetwise, a lot of common sense and a very savvy. Londoner? And Londoner, Fulham, from, from yeah, Fulham. Fulham worked well, yeah. his way up, yeah, this probably. business. Um, so yeah, I think I've got, it wasn't until I went to school, I was probably 11, I was aware of rap music, obviously dance music, but I don't think when you're 10 years old, you're really aware of genres. Maybe kids are nowadays because everything's in playlist yeah, form. Yeah. But when, when I was growing up, when you were yeah. growing up, you, put, you, just, you knew what music you liked, but you weren't necessarily... Unless, put, you, know, you wouldn't know. put it into a category, would you? Yeah, yeah. I know there were punks and mods yeah. and rockers and so yeah. on, but you know, because I even speak to like seven, eight-year-old kids now, and they know what house, pop, techno, yeah. drum and bass is. Yeah. Like seven, eight-year-old kids, yeah. that's just mad to me. Yes. But it's because of playlisting. Yeah. But yeah, I went to school at 11, uh, secondary school in South London. It was a really good school in terms of it was sponsored by ADT Security Systems. So it had amazing facilities. So we had a music department like sponsored by the local Young's Brewery. Yeah. And we were one, I think we were the first or second school in the entire UK to have um, Apple Logic sequencing, music wow. sequencing. quality. Um, the, even the, the cooking department, which was called Food Technology, yeah. was sponsored by British Gas. It was a really good school, wow. but there was 
kids from every walk of life. Yeah. There was like a lot of kids from the local Roehampton estate, which was a, a very estate. naughty estate. Very naughty. That's the biggest estate in Europe. I think. Yeah, biggest yeah. estate, biggest uh, housing we estate in a, Europe. We used to have a pub on there. We used to basically yeah. go down there on our rollerblades and BMXs yeah. back in the day just to skate certain steps and handrails because <laughs> it was a very hilly estate, so yeah. it was great for skating. Yeah. Um, but the amount of gangs that we'd get chased yeah. by. So there's a lot of kids from school from there, a lot of kids from Battersea, Brixton, Wandsworth. Um, and there's a lot of kids. I mean, it was, it was great school. I mean, it was a real mix of everyone. Yeah. Um, was there a point at that school you're like, yeah, music's for me? Yeah, I mean, like, so I, was, I wasn't very good at football. I've always had dodgy ankles. Like, I've been rolling my ankles since I was a kid. Still do. If I, I'm great running in a straight line. I'm great at swimming. Great at cycling. I would have been a great triathlete. Yeah. But when it comes to team sports, it's not that I didn't like team sports. I just I would constantly injure myself, yeah. putting my knees and hips out. So because of that, I started rapping. Mm. Because, um, you know, there, was, there were grunge kids... And I was a bit of a nerd as well, but I'd say the dominant culture was black culture in terms of the way people spoke, the way people dressed, yeah. um, you know, whether it was hip hop, R&B, UK garage, yeah. jungle music. It was like, that was the cool thing. I was obviously a lot of black kids at the school as yeah. well. So I kind of wanted to feel accepted yeah. or wanted to be part of yeah. something. Yeah. And the only way I could do that, because I couldn't play football or basketball, I didn't develop physically um, in the same way as all my, my peers, um, you know, I had this little geeky white kid with the same size teeth I've got now and a smaller <laughs> head. Um, but I was really good at rapping or learning yeah. other people's raps. Yeah. And that's, where my, that's when I fell in love with MCing. So I didn't even start the singing and songwriting probably for another 10 years later until I was probably like 20, okay. 21. So up until I was 20, it was pretty much exclusively just writing raps. Okay. Then I got my first record deal. Um, so what year? What year are we talking here? Really? So I was born in I was born in eighty two. Yeah. First record deal was first record deal was I went. I graduated from university. I, I studied film directing at university at Royal Holloway. Oh, nice. Well, I'm getting an honorary doctorate this week. Happy days, mate. Yeah. So oh, with the big funny hat and the cape. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to be Doctor Gleave. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking useless on a plane. Is there a doctor on board? <laughs> yeah, I can sink kick starts yeah. if you want. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm. Uh, Actually, <laughs> I don't know if you become a doctor. They, just, know. they get in contact with have you. you had, you've must have read when people get an honorary doctorate. Yeah. They just the university got in touch with me and they were like, "We want to, we want to, uh, you know, commend you and celebrate everything you've achieved in music." Even though I studied film at uni, yeah. So I'm going down this week and the head dean of students and they're getting the mortarboard yeah. and the gown on, yeah, yeah, and then yeah. I'm going to be officially a quality. Um, but yeah, so so when in terms of where the music was, so it was 16, 17 years old, so. 1998, started going to my first raves yeah. uh, under, a, you know, like fake IDs. Yeah. Started emceeing in garage clubs and on pirate radio, which is very good experience for sort of like firming me up because yeah. it was very quite aggressive. Yeah, it was tough, pirate radio. Yeah, very aggressive yeah. Um, surroundings. Yeah. Like, you know, I, luckily I never got into any trouble, but it was, mm. they were usually in really dodgy setups mm. as well. Like, you know, like crack houses yeah, and right. burnt out estates yeah, and yeah, all the yeah. roofs of 43rd floor of a that's building. Right. Um, but I think it hardened me because, uh, you know, if you can go into a room with 15 people, three DJs, 10, 11 MCs all passing the mic around, yeah. it's all very aggressive. Yeah. And then if you, you've got the confidence to step into that, it's almost like stepping into the gladiators arena. Yeah. You know what I mean? And then the, did you get acceptance with that? I got acceptance with that because yeah. obviously they're looking at a skinny little white kid, yeah. you know, with big lips and a weird haircut. And and then yeah, he used rap, and then it's like, oh it's yeah, yeah, he's yeah, all right, okay. he's all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then 
so I carried that through university where I studied film. Um, university, my dad was like, he goes, if you go and work all summer, because I was the first person in my family to go to university mm. for generations. Mm. My dad said, if you work all summer, whatever you earn, I'll give you the same, mm. which I'm going to apply to my kids as well yeah. when they get old enough. Yeah. So I went and worked with my, my late uncle. He was a plumber, um, incredible plumber, gas fitter, uh, tiling. And I would do bits of tiling, mm. bits of labouring, bits of painting. Mm. So I'd work every day for like 11 weeks. So I made £3,500. Double bubble. And then my dad would give me the same. So that, that's why I didn't take out a loan at university. Yeah. I realised that not every kid can do that, yeah. but I thought it was, a, it was a great thing. It's better than giving your kid a loan. Yeah. You know what I mean? You go and earn the loan in, uh, up front. Absolutely, yeah. So, yeah, I'd go to university each summer with about seven grand mm. so I could pay for my uni fees, pay for my accommodation, and then I'd worked in the kitchens when I was at uni to get you know, yeah. a bit of extra cash. Whilst I was studying film, there was a, 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 a vocal booth, a bit like this setup. Mm which was used for people doing voiceovers for documentaries. But me and my mate, Joe, who he was the beats producer, I was the rapper, obviously, we would say we were going to go and record a voiceover for a film. And they'd be like, you know, the university would be like, what, 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 what documentary are you making? Oh, well, you know, we're doing this documentary on the fellow down the road. Who, you know, he was, there, he was in World War II. What, have you shot the footage? Well, yeah, yeah, we've got it. Can we see it? Well, no, we're converting it. <laughs> when you're going to do the voiceover now, you haven't edited it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we'd be in there from like midnight till 5 a.m. when because it was a 24-hour yeah. recording hip-hop demos. <laughs> and then occasionally they'd be like, we need to see what you're actually doing in there. Yeah. <laughs> and we'd have to go and edit something and do a voiceover. <laughs> so I managed to get like the first six or seven hip-hop demos done. Graduated, went to Australia. Worked for a year, not not a year out because I didn't want to. Most people who what do. What year are we talking now? Two thousand and three. Three. Yeah. Watched England win the World Cup. Lovely. Um, beat beat Australia. I was right behind the goal where yeah, so Wilco Johnny. kicked that. Yeah, um, that was actually. A, I'd always loved international rugby, but I'd always been a football guy. But that was that obviously that tournament that made me yeah. fall in love with yeah. rugby properly to this day. Um, and then, <laughs> so then I'm in Australia, and then I meet a girl. But I was sort of in a relationship. Well, I, I thought I was. She didn't. But <laughs> her brother was in a, used to be in a famous band, so he let me use his recording studio. So I've then gone back to the UK in 2004. I've got all these demos. And then I just get a job as an editor, which is what I studied at university. So I'm working at Paramount Comedy Channel, MTV, Nickelodeon, in the tape library, because obviously now everything's digital, but back then it was still like the Betamax, yeah. Digibetas. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So I'm just like grafting. I'm releasing my stuff I've recorded in Australia in university on vinyl in my lunch breaks, going up and down the central line to record shops, dropping off vinyls. The sale or release. So they give you, yeah. they take 10 off you, 20 off you, yeah. and then they call you if they'd sold them. Most of the time they weren't selling them. Yeah. I, was, I, was, I, didn't, I, was made, I made music that I liked, but I didn't know how to find my market because I didn't sound like any of the other rappers yeah. or UK hip hop or UK garage. It was very hard to find a market because yeah. this is before MySpace and SoundCloud. Like, that's the best thing about nowadays is if you can come up with a complete unique sound, finds its audience. Yeah, straight away. Whereas back then, yeah. if you weren't being supported by Zane Lowe or Pete Tong yeah. on radio, the record that people weren't going into record shops looking for that sound. Yeah. So I learned very quickly from the first three releases. So my first single, I think I pressed 1,000 copies and sold 50. Second release, I pressed only 500 copies, but we sold them all. And then the third release, I think we sold 5,000 vinyls. That was the release that got handed to Zane Lowe and Pete Tong. This was 2005. Yeah. 
So I was still working at Paramount Comedy Channel. They were just about to offer me a promotion because I'd been secretly editing in my lunch breaks. And and then I was doing voiceovers on my own promos, but in accents. And then the boss would be like, who, who, which voiceover artist did you book for that? I didn't approve that because obviously a voiceover <laughs> artist is like two hundred pounds yeah, for an hour, yeah. and I'd be like, uh, and then like my, my coworker was like, just fucking tell him. I was like, that was me. So it'd be st- you'd be stuff like you're watching Paramount Comedy Two coming up in a minute, four slags and six in the city, and then but they'd, I'd cut my own promo, yeah, and it would go on air, and then the boss would be like, who approved this voiceover artist? And then I'd be like, that's me. So after a while, they were like. He, he's running a tape but he can edit and he can do voiceovers. Yeah, yeah. So they were about to offer me a pay rise okay. to become a promo producer, yeah. which is promos for anyone who don't know is all the bits you see between television shows. Yeah. So the, whatever isn't television or adverts is usually a promo or a skit, you know, selling what's coming up. Yeah. Um, and then at the same time I was about to get a promotion in TV, I got a record deal offer from I had three record deals on the table is this after you've pressed the 5,000 and sold them all yeah this was so the the song was getting heavily rotated on Zane Lowe so Zane Lowe played it three times in a week then Chris Moyles played it on the Radio 1 Breakfast Show and, and Pete Tong played it tw- two weeks in a row so just just hold it there are you sending them your record say do us a favour whack it on or are they just grabbing it and going you know what we love this track let's what, get it on the radio what happened is I was getting a few spins on XFM by a guy called Dan Greenpeace. He used to have the all-city hip-hop show. Um, he was like a, a manager as well. He managed the rapper Sway back in the day. So he'd been handed a vinyl, I think, my, my manager at the time. But you used to be able to go down to Radio 1 and 1 Extra, and you could get in the door, and there'd be pigeonholes, and you used to be able to put a CD or a vinyl in. But then they started making the pigeonholes smaller so, so you couldn't get a seven-inch vinyl in. Yeah. So then I went round to my uncles and would be burning CDs all weekend. Yeah. Dropping off at record labels, dropping off Brilliant. at radio stations. Brilliant. But you had to, I did it probably 11, 12 times until they actually picked up the CD. Yeah. Because you think their producer takes it up to the office and then they may have to listen to 50 new songs, yeah. but they're being plugged songs not only by the record labels, but then by people like me coming in off the street. Yeah. So your chances of getting that spin. Yeah. But all you've got to do is get them to hear it. Yeah. And most of the time, that CD just goes to the bottom of the pile or goes in the bin. So I, I was just wouldn't take no for an answer. I was mm. just like, they're going to hear it. And this, very, was, oh, this was all before Spotify and iTunes yeah, so and everything. Was, so this was proper grass. MySpace had been set up, but wasn't really a yeah. thing. Because obviously there were a lot of artists getting signed off MySpace. Lily Allen, key to that. You know, yeah. she would put up her early demos on MySpace and record labels became interested in her. Arctic Monkeys were the first sort of big MySpace success story where they, they set up a MySpace. People would listen to their four songs, go, this band's amazing. Then you go down to their gig. And because you could only fit four songs on MySpace at mm. the start, but they had 10 songs, so they would throw out three CDs. So right. everyone who went to their gig had 10 songs. You had more, an extra six songs yeah. than you had on MySpace. Yeah. So I, this was all a learning curve for me at the time. I was still, because I was a bit, I, when I was doing vinyls, I should have been doing CDs. And when I was doing CDs, I should have been doing MySpace, but I very quickly caught up. Because yeah. I, di- I didn't know anything about the music industry. I didn't yeah. have any friends in the music industry. I worked it all out myself. Just Quality. turn up to an open mic event, get on the mic, spit. Someone else go, oh, you're sick. I'd be like, How'd you get your song on radio? How'd you get your face in the magazine? Yeah. How'd you how'd you get on TV? Yeah. How'd you get a booking for a gig? Just asking yeah, questions mate. constantly. Questions, questions. And I say kids say this to me now, like, how'd you do it? I'm like, it's not as easy because there aren't record shops and there's not music scenes and there's not as many live venues that you can just walk in on. Mm. Like, just DM. Yeah. And they're like, Yeah, but how many DMs have I got to send? I'm like, a thousand? Doesn't matter. And they're like, 
Really? Yeah. And you can see in their eyes the ones who are going to go and do it and the yeah. ones who aren't. Yeah. Because that's, it's like, say you're a good rapper or you're a good singer or you're a good producer, you want to collab with someone. If you, like I get sent, someone sends me a beat and the, if I've got time, the least I'll do is listen to it. Yeah. And I'll go back and just say, honestly, I really appreciate you sending me. This is not good enough. Yeah. For You'll something. be straight with them, are you? I'll be straight. Yeah. I'll crazy. send them a voice note. Yeah. Well done. Because nice. um, it's a lot quicker. Yeah. It's 20 seconds. Yeah. It's not something I can work with, but keep at it. Yeah. Um, and don't give up. Maybe go and send it to some, pe- some people with a much smaller profile than me. Yeah. And then occasionally, like, so the last UK tour, you meet these people outside a gig and they'll be like, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, like, they play you a song or they start rapping to you. And then I'm like, actually, you're pretty decent. And they're like, can I come on tour with you? I'm like, well, no. <laughs> you know, you can't open up for my gig tomorrow. <laughs> and then it's the moment you say to them, you're going to have to work so hard. And then I say to them, look, I was driving from London to Brighton to Birmingham and my mum's Oxford Corsa to drop off 20 vinyls. Yeah. And that was my Saturday. Yeah. So you can at least spend your whole Saturday cold calling yeah. via direct message yeah. to artists. Well, find the biggest artist in yeah. Germany or someone in Argentina or someone in... But um, Columbia, which mm. is the highest streaming mm. Spotify country in the is world. Is that right? Yeah, that's why like Jay Balvin's, every song's wow. like a billion streams. Wow. They're obsessed with it over there. So, and you pass them on, you can see in their faces, nah, no, I'm just going to spend all Saturday drinking or smoking yeah. weed. Yeah. And that's what it, that, that's, but that's the difference. It, that's the difference. Yeah, mate. I was willing to put in the, the time back yeah. then, like physically and the miles. Yeah. And I'm still putting in the time now, as you see from my Insta, I'm constantly yeah. replying to fans now when yeah. most people are like, spend time with your kids. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's what's um, gained you the love because yeah. you do reply to people. Yeah. And then I think that's why the tour sold out as, yeah. or is about to sell out yeah. because people. So tell me, like, tell, people, me where the, tell me where the tour is this, coming up. It's January, February 2022, 14 gigs. I mean, Glasgow sold out in an hour. It's like, because they're loopy up there. And where's they? that? Where, what's the venue up in Glasgow? <laughs> it's the Glasgow Academy. But I think my music is, as you know, it's just like my, my live show is just madness. Yeah. And I think Scottish people relate to yeah. that more than anything. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But yeah, so back to where, where we were. So yeah, I, got, I was playing on radio in 2005, got three record deals on the table. My manager, I, I just sort of, he was helping me and then he became my manager. So 2005, you were a no one. Nobody. All of a sudden, there was three record deals. What does, a record, I, what does a record deal look like for a normal bod listening to this? All right, so there's usually an advance. So like people will either do a single deal or an album deal. So single deals like when you've got a song that's bubbling under, which could be a hit, yeah. but people don't think you've got anything else to offer. You might, you might be a one-hit wonder or they want to see how the single does. Okay. And then they might offer you an album deal. So they'll pay you for, for a single deal. They'll pay you a lump up front. Yeah, so, so I don't, like, I'm going back like, like 15, 16 yeah. years now. But back then, so Ministry of Sound, if there was a new up-and-coming Dutch, Swedish DJ with a, a song, a one-hit wonder, there might be a bidding war for 100 grand, 200 grand, okay. five, half, half a mil yeah. for one song. Yeah. Um, and then they sign that for, say, a 10-year term, so they will retain the rights to that master recording for 10 years, and then it reverts back to whoever wrote and produced it. Right, okay. um, and then there's a percentage, so it might be the label get 80%. Yeah. Um, and... 80% of what? 80% of whatever that song earns from where it be a CD sale, yeah. a download, right, okay. um, a stream. Okay. So, you know, a thousand streams might now is now the equivalent of like one sale because it's yeah. like 0.03p yeah. per stream. Oh, it's ridiculous. Well, yeah. It's crazy, isn't it? Um, so then, and then the artist has got 20%. 
but the artist has to recoup their advance with their 20%. Okay. So you imagine you so imagine you sign a, a single for 100 grand. Yeah. That single's got absolutely it's got to be number 1 in 10 countries and sell millions of copies for you to recoup your 100 grand or based off your 20%. Right. Uh, so the label will cover all marketing costs. Right, so okay. PR and plug-in. But the um, is this pre Spotify and pre pre iTunes? Yeah, okay. I mean, but it's still this is where I'm going to get to. So yeah. there's a lot of deals which are the same now. Yeah, really old fashioned deals. So the reason why these deals are structured like this and in favour of the label is back in the day, a record label would have probably you know hundred staff, and the reason they had that is because there's people you know imagine imagine the manufacturing mm. of vinyls, mm. even CDs, and then exporting it. The weight of that, yeah. you know, the haulage, yeah. the, the distribution, putting it up in the, in the you know, for sale labor in the intensive. shop. The labour yeah. intensive. Yeah. So the labour would take the lion's share yeah. because of the costs involved. The artist essentially had to sell the song, sing it, perform it, and then go and do the promo. But their cut was probably quite fair and reflective in terms of what the label had yeah. to do, yeah. you know, because they've got there's all these people servicing it to yeah. magazines and press and they do your photo shoots and your video shoots yeah. and imagine like posters for instance mm. we don't really think of posters anymore because mm. it's not the thing but remember fan clubs mm. so like in the, the era of smash hits every pop artist there'd be a department in that record label just dealing with fan clubs yeah. which is signed photos yeah. and competitions and meet and greets that doesn't happen anymore yeah. if that happens now that comes from the artist going on insta story and saying i'm going to be in birmingham tomorrow such and such come and meet me, yeah. come and meet yeah. me. Yeah. so yeah. the artist runs the fan club yeah. now Whereas back then, imagine the amount of money you'd be paying for five or six people just running a fan club yeah. for, say, the Backstreet Boys in just the UK. Yeah. And then Crazy. there'd be about a you know, fan club team in America of 50 people to run the fan club. Yeah. So that's why the label would have a bigger cut. But then what happened is CDs come along, arguably the 80, 20, you know, 80 for the label, 20 for the artist thing was probably still fair. By the time it got to iTunes, you're pretty much just sending your song to yeah. iTunes. And they upload it, and there's no, it's not labor intensive yeah. anymore. Yeah. So, realistically, labels should have cut their workforce probably by 30, 40%. Plus. And the, and the, yeah, and the yeah. more, yeah. yeah. And then the deals should have been more like 50 50. Yeah. Is that the case? Well, what happened is, is there's still artists now being signed where they're maybe getting 75. So, the label getting 75 and 25, and 25 for the artists, which is just absolutely bonkers um, to, to think that that's still fair. If you're if you're independent, say you came up like Stormzy, who was having top ten singles by himself independently, without really any marketing push. So I, he had no label. He had no label. So when Stormzy uh, released his first album, I think it was like a distribution deal. So he signed himself to his own label, Murky yeah. Records, and then licensed it to Atlantic. Okay. So he, I don't know what his deal was, but let's say it would have been very much in his favour yeah. percentage-wise. 90-10. Yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah. And he would have and guaranteed he would have owned his masters, yeah. which is the key thing because yeah. that's when you own your masters. So and I get my masters back. What's the masters? The masters is the master recording, i.e. Okay. who owns that recording. The rights so to the that. The rights one. to that okay, recording. Yeah. So, okay. in, in te- so it's 10 years since my third album of Ministry of Sound came out next November next November I get the masters back for my second third and fourth album my three biggest albums and what does that allow you to do I own them 100% which allows you then to do what licensing deals with other labels around the world so I could go to uh, Germany 
and go to a company who do syncs, synchronized songs with adverts and films. They're called syncs. So it's when you, you know, when you see a song on an advert or in the end credits of a film. So that's or when a, you get the royalties. That's when you get royalties. So they might, yeah. you know, like they might come to you. So for instance, All Night, which is my biggest song since I left the major system. Cracking which came out. Thank you. Yeah, that's me. That's the one. I'm, if anyone doesn't know, mate, my, my missus is dancing in the living room in her underwear. Mate, she's in underwear. Thirty-five million views on YouTube, and that song costs nothing. Costs nothing. And did you and the video pl- cost did you nothing. plan that, or did you just have a few rums, a few drinks? We in? did. We did eleven takes of the video, and in the last one, she went, "No one's going to watch this." She took off her tracksuit bottoms, and that's <laughs> all we used. And all I spent mate. on that song was five grand on YouTube ads. Wow. And I think the song's probably generated a quarter of a million. Wow. Um, I spent no money on promotions either. That's genius. I, I did all the radio plugging myself. That's that song's probably been as a business model my most successful. Yeah. But for instance, Netflix came to us and said we want to use thirty seconds of the song in a in a, a, a comedy. Yeah. And we wanted to use it as the main trailer. And my um, distributor, where well, I was on ninety, they were on ten. Yeah. Negotiated a six-figure fee just for that. Just for that. Just for that one song being in a Netflix film and being on the trailer. Happy days, mate. Um, but usually what would happen if you were on a major, yeah. the major label would take... The lion's uh, share. Yeah. So it's, it's divided between whoever wrote it yeah. and whoever's got the master recording. Okay. So as a songwriter, you'd get, you know, half of that or whatever your share was yeah. of half of that and then the label would take the other... Why would, why would anyone want to give the masters away? Is that because you're going to get a lump up front and yeah, they've, got, they've so, got the power behind yeah. them to promote you? So everybody pretty much signs... Um, rights away for a certain amount of time. Okay. Um, some artists sign for life. So they sign a record deal. So they get 250 grand up front for album one with an option for another album where that escalates to 300 grand yeah. up front. This is obviously money that comes in your bank. So yeah. it's non-recoupable. You don't have to pay it back as such, but you have to pay it back with, excuse me, with your earnings, you know, with your, your streams or your income. So you have to earn that. that oh, you have to earn that back, back before, before you then before start you earning more. Yeah. Okay. Wow. So, but there's artists. Some of my peer group. I'm not going to name names because it's not fair. Yeah. But some of them, when they sign their record deal, sign their masters away for life. Wow. Some of them. And is that something you would recommend anyone listening? Do not do that. Do not do that. And then there's other people who might have signed. You know, a good deal would be 25 years. So in 25 years, that that those masters revert to you. The average now is probably 10 or 15. But what I did, what my lawyer did 10 years ago was unheard of at the time. Go on. Which, well, 10-year terms. Yeah. So that's why next year, it's 10 years from the release of your last album, next year I get the rights back to all my biggest songs. Are you excited by that? Yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, like... So that allows you then to go, right, Germany, Czechoslovakia, wherever. Wherever it was a hit, you can then go to a company and you can do an admin deal. So you don't even... There's no advances involved, but you say... You can have this song and go and shop it around for film, TV, adverts, uh, computer games, another yeah. big one. You know, go to EA Sports, see if they yeah. want the, the beat for Change the Way You Kiss Me for FIFA when the, yeah. you know, as the game starts. Dun, 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 yeah. dun, and they'll go and negotiate a deal and whatever they get, they take 10%. Happy days, mate. But you can't do that unless you own the Masters. Yeah. And why does someone do five years? Why is it always 10? Why well, you said a minute ago, 10 years, well, 15, that's, It's just the old-fashioned music business model, model of, you know, like... Doing deals, people, it's like this old boys club at the head of the major labels, yeah. doing deals that... Have just stuck. That have just stuck, yeah. that are old-fashioned, that shouldn't be around. Mm. Mental, isn't it? That's madness. That's madness. Let's roll back a little bit, Elliot. Let's go back, so, yeah. to, let's go back to that. When did you really first know that you were going to become a star? 
Was there um, a point? Or when did you first do your first gig where you were like, oh, I'm loving this. This is for me. So I'd, I'd done, I'd probably done 30 gigs before I signed my first deal, which was with Mike Skinner, the Streets label. So he had a label called The Beats, which went through Warner that he was signed to. So essentially the money was coming from Warner, but he was able to run the label and sign yeah. who he wanted. So he signed an act called The Mitchell Brothers. He signed me and he signed Professor Green. Okay. Yeah. Which, which uh, that was 2005 and six. Oh, okay. My first album came out in 2007. So by the time my first album came out, I'd probably done about 200 gigs. That might have been... In clubs? Might have been clubs. Might have been uni balls. Okay. Uh, it might have been little pubs in East London and Camden and Shoreditch, you know, when there used to be a bit of a band scene. Yeah. It might have been, you know, 50 people. Yeah. It was just me, like, drunk on stage, <laughs> long hair, baggy singing about lad life yeah. you know lad yeah, yeah, rap yeah, yeah. you know like oh my girlfriend wants to leave me because I'm pissed all the time and oh, I saw some people have a fight in the cinema yeah. and I want to go to Nando's and she wants to go to Pizza Express yeah. like literally that was, those yeah. are the stories yeah 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 yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> probably why probably why the album didn't do too well um, but that even when that I got signed that deal I didn't think I was going to be famous I just was bored of doing a nine to five yeah. in TV, and I thought I'm going to get to go on tour with the streets. Mm, happy days. Yeah, I was I was 23, mm. 24. So I was like, why would I not want to go on tour with the biggest band in the country? It's all about rock and roll and drugs and drink yeah. and girls and madness. I was like, that could be me. Yeah. It wasn't really. I mean, I got a taste of it, but then my album came out in 2007, bombed. Then everybody else's album on the label bombed. Mike Skinner's lost his deal with well he lost his label so every, everyone on the label sort of got dropped what because it all bombed all bombed okay. I think they spent a fortune yeah. I don't know like a few hundred grand yeah. like just down the drain yeah. with nothing to show for yeah. it and so they're taking a punt on you as well they're taking a punt yeah okay um, I pretty much spent most of my advance um, how much did you advance on your first one it was remember about, it, was a, it was about the same as the promotion I was offered at work so I think it was about That's, 40 grand yeah um, so I was I was getting I was going from like twenty four grand to forty grand doing something you love in in pa- Paramount Comedy, yeah. which became Comedy Central shortly after. Yeah. I think my first record deal was about the same. I remember my boss was just like, "Right, well, I'm offering you the same amount of money. Why, why would you? Why would you want to go?" And, I was like, "Why would I want to go on tour with the biggest band yeah. in the country yeah, yeah, and live yeah. on a tour bus? Yeah, and have, Get, getting but, on it for months. Getting on it for months <laughs> with a load of girls backstage." Yeah, when you put it like that, actually. <laughs> um, so it was quite an easy decision. But then a year later, it all fallen to shit. My mum and dad had moved to Australia with my sister. Yeah. And they, they just kind of watched from afar what was happening. So at this point, I wasn't really getting festival bookings. I was probably earning £500 a gig for yeah. a good gig. Yeah. Um, I think we sold out. We had a little following going. Mm. Like We would go up to Nottingham and do 250. Mm. We'd go up to Birmingham and do 250. Mm. London, I think we did 600 tickets. I maybe got paid two and a half grand for that. Yeah. But it just was going nowhere. I didn't have any follow-up album. I didn't have any new songs. The new songs I was writing were worse than the ones before. Who was throwing weight behind you? Because that was before Facebook and Instagram. How were um, you getting weight behind you back then? I was, it, was, it was pretty much just MySpace. Okay. Um, and, and, yeah, Twitter wasn't even around then. It was pretty much all MySpace. Mm. And then, like, if, if I was doing a gig, the gig promoters putting up posters in student yeah. unions and adverts in yeah. student magazines and publications. Yeah. So it was pre-Facebook. Yeah. And then I was then I started applying to move to Australia because I'd given up. So I went back, started working in TV, doing a few jobs. What do you mean you'd given up? I was just like, you just like, well, I was like I've had one record deal. Yeah. I thought I was decent. Yeah. I'm not. 
Um, I knew I was a good performer. What was that feeling like? It was, I mean, I wasn't ever depressed because I was such a happy person. I was always like, as much as I partied, I always trained. So yeah. if I was ever feeling bad, I'd just wake up and go for a four mile run. Yeah. And then anyone who knows, who does that, yeah. knows that you can get through anything. I've like had mates who are suicidal and I've said to him, just start, give, give up the weed yeah. and just start running. Yeah. And they're like a different person within yeah. the space of two, three weeks. Yeah, I agree. Because um, I don't, you know, everyone has their vices and I get mm. that. But the people I know who just wake up and have a spliff and have a mm. spliff before they go to bed and don't do any exercise. Yeah. They're the ones in they my experience. They do lally in the mind, don't they? They're the do lally yeah. in the yeah. mind, yeah. yeah. Um, it works for some people, but most, 99% mm. of people can't function like that. Yeah. Anyway. Um, I started applying to move to Australia, which was quite exciting. I was like, my mum and dad are there, my sister's there. I've lived, I'd already lived there for a year before, and I had some friends there. But I, my university degree from London meant nothing in terms of getting into Australia. Yeah. So I was going to have to go back to university for two years in Australia at the age of 25, excuse me, to, um, to get a visa. Yeah. My mum and dad had moved there on a retirement visa, and my sister had come as their one dependent. Mm. So I'm applying for university in Australia. And then my manager was like, you know, I say he was my manager. He was more just like a friend and a mentor. Yeah. Like he discovered Plan B and the streets. Did he? Yeah. What's and his name? Mick Shiner. And um, we're still in touch now. He's not my manager anymore, but yeah. I see him like once a month. We yeah. chat all the time. Yeah, he's always like his new band are going to be my support act on my next tour. Brilliant. Um, he's got a young girl called Halo who's amazing. I've written some songs for her. So we're still very much in touch with that family. So... He's called me and just gone, Ministry of Sound want to meet you. And this is like 2008. Yeah. And I'm like, mate, I'm done with this industry. I'm moving to Australia. Yeah. I was living with my step-granddad, who was 96, in an old council house in Fulham. I mean, it was a nice area, yeah. but the house was falling apart. You know, and he was obviously 96. He was refused to go into a home. Yeah. The house, it was the sort of house I couldn't really bring girls back to. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um <laughs> Bless yeah. his soul. I mean, yeah. he lived to it just before he was 100. Yeah. Um, and I was just like, this isn't life. I was in debt, but I hadn't really told anyone because I was too proud yeah. and too embarrassed to tell anyone that I was taking out loans. Yeah. I knew my dad would have gone mental. And then Ministry of Sound are like, come and meet me. So I've gone in, I've played him a few songs. And one of them was this beat. Um, and it was a, a famous beat in, in Europe at the time. It was called So It Goes. And it was by Bart Beemore. And it had this massive rave riff that went dun, 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 and it was an instrumental. And I'd done a bootleg of it as a laugh maybe six months before just to perform at the end of my show because mm. I was like, I just want to have a big ending to yeah. the show because hip-hop was all a bit like boom, And I wanted some like... Dun, dun, yeah, dun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'd made this song, Show Me Your Dirty Face, which I just came up with one day. I don't know why. I remember I think I was like performing in a crowd and there was this girl in the front row like doing... <laughs> like that to me and I was just like oh hey, show me your dirty face <laughs> and afterwards my DJ went that's a really good line for a song yeah. so I played this to um, uh, Dave Donnymore who's now the head of RCA Records yep. he's had a really good, good long career this is like 2008 and he was like why don't you do the dance stuff and I was like what do you mean he said, do the dance stuff I went well, I don't know any dance producers he went, well I do I work at Ministry of Sound yeah. he said I want you to go and work with Calvin Harris, Chase and Status, Subfocus, MJ Cole. Um, there was another guy who was bubbling at the time called Hervé, who's doing really well. He's just like, I want you to just go and work with him. 
And I was like, I already knew like Chasing Status from the scene. Yeah. I'd met him a few times. Obviously, I knew Calvin. Mm. I'd met him a few times, but I hadn't yet worked with him. Good lad. Yeah, he's a great lad. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. Um, like perfectionist, absolute perfectionist about everything. He's incredible. Um, and then I was just like, so what shall I do? And he went, well, who's your favorite dance act? So I was like, well, I love Faithless. He mm. went, all right, well, do less rapping and more talking, like yeah. Maxi Jazz. I was like, I love Basement Jacks. Yeah. He was like, well, what do you love about Basement Jacks? I was just like, well, it's just all a bit mad, isn't it? Like, and visceral and yeah. out there and a bit spacey and like it sounds like a fe- all the music sounds yeah. like a festival. He went, right, well, bear that in mind. He was like, what else should I? I was like, like the Prodigy. Like, he went, well, why don't you bring some of that aggression to it when, whenever the bass line's dirty enough, bring yeah. some aggression. So with those, that sort of advice. And then the main thing that he did, which was brilliant, Dave Dollymore at Ministry, is he, he put me in with this guy called Brian Rawling, who lives out um, just before you get to Guildford, in the middle of the countryside. Massive, big complex, all like outhouses, each one's its own little studio. I've never actually really spoken about this ever, ever in an interview or anything. Um, so his team had written Believe in Life After Love for Cher, which was number one yeah. in like 28 countries. Yeah. one of the biggest songs of the century. That's huge. Like, then they'd also written Hero for Enrico Iglesias, probably the other biggest song <laughs> yeah. of the century. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, apart from your Celine Dion's and Mariah Carey's, yeah. those two songs are probably the two biggest, two of the biggest songs of the last what, 20, Easy. 30 years? Easy, yeah. And this guy had written them. Mm. Well, his team had written them. So I, Dave Dollymore got me a week with them. So I basically just went and studied how they wrote songs because all I knew to do was rap. Yeah. Studied melody and so on. The first song that I went in with, they'd written a chorus. It was like, hey, good morning, watch the sun come up, which became my song, watch the sun come yeah. up. So I just wrote the raps. But I was learning the process of melodies Quality. and songwriting. And then I kind of took all the tricks of the trade that I'd learned from them and applied them to the songs I was writing with Chasing Status and Sub Focus and so on. So Watch Sun Come Up was my first top 40. I think it was like number 17 in the charts in 2009. Big support from Radio 1, Pete Tong, Zane Lowe. The next single was Won't Go Quietly, which I wrote again with Brian Rawlings' team, yeah. a young guy called Alex Smith, who was up and, his up-and-coming whiz yeah. kid. Won't Go Quietly charted at number six. And then the next song, that came out was Kickstarts in 2010. And interestingly, Kickstarts, Subfocus made the beat. Subfocus obviously now probably the biggest name in drum and bass, apart from maybe Chase and Status and Wilkinson. He's the biggest in the world. It's the only song he's ever produced for someone else, is Kickstarts. Everything else he's done is produced for him. He's only produced one song and it was Kickstarts. So he's made the beat. I've written the entire song by myself, no help with lyrics or melody. So it was my first go at singing, really. Like, want me to come over, yeah. I got an excuse. I wrote it hungover on a tour bus on the back, back from supporting Lily Allen in Glasgow at a Glasgow arena. <laughs> and it was about going home, my ex-girlfriend thinking, like, oh, I'm being a bit of a bastard, I'm cheating, I know, I'm lying, I'm doing too many drugs, I'm being an arsehole. <laughs> you know, this is like 2010. And I'm just like, I need to sort of encapsulate it's all in the song. And then I was like, but I was such a selfish bastard because I was missing my mum and dad who were living on the other side of the world. Yeah. And my sister, I didn't really have a family. Yeah. So she was like my girlfriend, but she was also all I had in terms of a family. Yeah. And that's why the lyrics like, I might be holding your hand, but I'm holding it loose. Right. In terms of, you know, when you're coming to the end of yeah, a relationship, yeah, yeah. we've fallen out of love with someone. And then there's that l- lyric, which I don't even know where it came from. Look into your eyes, imagine life without you. And the love kickstarts again. Yeah. And obviously it just resonates with everyone. Yeah. And then I wrote that and then went into the label and played it. And everyone was just like, what the fuck? they were like, this, this is it. I was like, what do you mean? They were like, this is the turning point. This is like, you're, you're going to have a career now. You're going to yes, be a star. Mate. Love it. 
And that was 2010. The song came out. It was number three in the charts. Mm. Everyone, everyone thought it was going to be number one, but the World Cup, South Africa World Cup mm. song. So number one was Dizzy Rascal's World Cup song. Remember yeah. that dodgy? Shout, <laughs> shout, let <laughs> it all out. Yeah, yeah. yeah, man, England, get your England flags. Like, even, like, we know, even he doesn't perform it. That was yeah. just, he just did that because it was a big payday yeah. from Simon Cowell, which yeah. is totally fine. Yeah. And then the second, <laughs> second in the charts was uh, Waving Flag by K-9. Do you remember that song? Mm. We got the waving flag. Oh, yeah, yeah, I yeah, think yeah. it was a South African yeah. artist, maybe. Yeah, yeah. And then and Kickstarts is number three. And number four was Kylie's comeback tune, uh, Lovers or something. Mm. That was number four. So that was the charts that week. But then the difference was, was all of a sudden it was like, you're number one in Ireland, you're blowing up in Australia, you're blowing up in Hungary, you're blowing up in Canada, you're blowing up in Australia, you're massive wow. in New Zealand, you're big in Germany. All these sort of, yeah. all this news coming through and that's when it was just like, what? So but instead of getting carried away, because I was still in the middle of doing tours and gigs, we'd got my first, so about the time, I was probably getting a grander gig, yeah. sporadically. Yeah. And I went from a grand to, after Kickstarts came out, we got booked for V Festival. So Kickstarts came out in- 2010. 2010, <clears> 10, <throat> June. Yeah. I played V Festival 2010, which was August. Yeah. I think we got 7,500 quid. Yes. Good and then the you. next time I played V Festival, a year later, our fee doubled. And the next time we played, our fee doubled. And then it just kept going up and up yeah. until it was six figures. I mean, my biggest V Festival I ever played, because I always used V Festival as a barometer, yeah. was Stone Rose's Noel Gallagher example. That was the main stage. And what year was that, roughly? 2015 or 16. Wow. Um, I think Stone Rose's got a mill. For that one hour? For that one, well, one and one and a half hours. Wow. So you can imagine then what Noel got and what I got. It was pretty, pretty silly. Wow. But, that was, I think, remember, so Kickstarts came out. So Kickstarts was your game changer. That was the game changer. Yeah. That was it. It was, that was also the recipe. It was like a massive riff that everyone remembers. Do, 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 yeah. do. A fat bass line. Yeah. Singing about life, love, whatever, sadness. Like it was, but the music's happy and uplifting, but yeah. the lyrics are sad. Yeah. Everyone can relate to it. And then there's a little rap in the middle. So then I applied that to Change the Way You Kiss Me as well. So I wrote Change the Way You Kiss Me two weeks after I'd released So Kickstart. you found your niche. Found my niche. Happy days. Um, and, and that's I'm, a mixture of surround yourself with the right people. Yeah. And just like, I think it was partly because I've always been competitive, but I wasn't really competitive in the music because I didn't really know what my forte was at that point. Yeah. It's like hard to, it's almost like, imagine you're really good at football or rugby, but you don't know what position to play yeah. in. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. You're like, you've got certain skills, but then you're, you're, your manager or mentor is like, I don't know if he's meant to be a striker or yeah. a defender because yeah, yeah, he can yeah. do a bit of both. Yeah. And then I found out that I was like this box-to-box midfielder. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, and then I just stuck to it. And then, because everyone was like, if you write one, one hit, you can have a few years career. Yeah. If you write two hits, you can have five years. If you write three or four hits, you've got a lifelong career. Because yeah, everyone will always come, people will always want to book someone with four big songs yeah. in a set. Like, oh, yeah, so-and-so, blah, 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 blah. who's that? Travis. Oh, yeah, we'll book Travis. I mean, yeah. they've got four big songs. Or, yeah. you know, no, no offence right. to Travis. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, there's always these acts who just always be around for years. Yeah. Snow Patrol. Yeah. Oh, yeah, they can headline our festival. They've got five massive tunes. Yeah. And then if you then deliver a new hit, then that adds even more value yeah. to you. So, so what was your yeah. world then? What was your world? That, that, that period of 2010 to 2016, <laughs> were you peaking at what? What year were you peaking? I think the peak was probably 2014. Was so, it? so I was the only act in the UK to do two arena tours in the same 12 months, apart from so, Rihanna. So Rihanna did two arena tours uh, 11 months apart, and I did two arena tours nine months. Apart. All sold out. All sold out. We wow. sold. Give me an example of an arena tour. 172,000 tickets in a year. 
across two tours. Wow. Give I mean, me an example of an arena tour. One arena tour. In terms of what? Location, <clears throat> capacity, and what the deal looked like. Um, so, because... Did you have a promoter? So, because so, I, I... Yeah, so you have a promoter putting it on, so it would have been SJM Concerts, yep. based up north. Um, so it would have Simon been... Simon James. Yeah, that's it. Yep. So you would have had... So I had Kickstarts, Change the Way You Kiss Me, number one. Yep. Stay Awake, number one. Unorthodox with Wretch, 3-2, number two. Um, Say Nothing, off my fourth album, that was number two. All we'll in be, the UK? All in the UK. Yeah. We'll be coming back with Calvin, number two. So I had uh, eight top tens by this point, and three albums. In the, well, I actually had four albums, but the first hip-hop album that no one really forgot. But I had three big albums mm. and eight top tens. And I think, I've, to this, right now I've had 24 top 40s. Two as songwriter, 22 as an artist, some of them as features. Yeah. Um, and we put this arena tour on sale and it was, it was nine, eight gigs. So it was like the Birmingham, uh, not NEC, National Indoor Arena. What sort of capacity was that? So that was like 12,000. 12. Yeah. Smallest one would have been like Cardiff Arena, Motor Point Arena, which was like 7,000. Seven, okay. And then you've got the Bo- uh, Bournemouth BIC. What's that? Yeah. Six? That's got to be six, six and six, seven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's small ones. Yeah. Newcastle, 10. Manchester Arena, 15. O2 Arena, 19,000. Did you do the O2? I sold out the O2. Did you? I sold out the O2 and Ells Court. I was the second to last act to play Ells Court before they knocked it down. Yeah, I was, cool. was going to be the last act to ever play because Ells Court's my local venue yeah. growing up in yeah, Fulham. Yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. I used to sneak in there to watch yeah. Oasis when I was yeah. a kid. Yeah. So we sold 22,000 tickets for Ells Court. And then they were going to knock it down six months later and the Arctic Monkeys announced the last-minute gigs because they wanted to be the last band to play Ells Court. So they were the last band to play, but I was the penultimate act to sell out Ells Court. So when you do an arena tour, give me an example of what that deal looks like. Do you go, the promoter come to you and say, I'm going to guarantee you this up front or I'll guarantee yeah. you X and they then guarantee every you, ticket we sell, you get X? They guarantee you a fee and then they do a versus deal where it might be on like 80% or something. So after, after you've done 80% of tickets... You get a better okay. rate. Okay, well, you get a bigger. Well, so they're basing. They're, they're saying that in their heads they're going right. It's thirty pounds a ticket. Ticket ten thousand. And then we're three hundred grand. Yeah, and then we're going to guarantee him this amount because the others obviously they they're renting the venue yeah. and then you've got all the staff yeah. and then the promotions etc. So they work out your cost and my live agent will determine whether it's fair or not based on ticket yeah. price. So obviously there's some acts who are charging 150 pound a ticket. Yeah. So you're guaranteed fee up front. You know, they're doing one arena yeah. and they're getting 200 grand, 300 yeah. grand yeah. fee up front. Yeah. That's probably, you know, your uh, radio heads, yeah. for instance. Yeah. So they won't even bother doing a versus deal because they know it's probably going to sell out, you know. So they'll just say, if you want Radiohead to do five arenas, we want one, one mil. Up front. Up front. Mm. So it's that sort of thing. So you did, eight, you did eight arenas. I did eight arenas, but then they were selling so well, we added three more. So well, I think at we the added, same venue, some of the same yeah, venues. So because we were doing Birmingham, Birmingham sold so well, they were like, "Oh, we can add a Nottingham Arena in." Okay. But usually you'd only do Birmingham because you expect close. people from Nottingham to come yeah. to. And then there was like, "We'll add a Sheffield in." Yeah. So we added. Imagine like how close Birmingham, Nottingham, and Sheffield yeah. are geographically, well, yeah. and we did all three of them and sold all three of them out. That was the first arena tour. So we, I think, what year what, was this? Sixteen. Uh, no, 14. 2014. Um, was that the point? Was that was that probably the, the pinnacle because yeah. then, so I headlined Park Live Festival in Manchester. I headlined Southwest Four on Clapham Common, sold out. Headlined Global Gathering. Did you? Um, yeah, we just like we. I headlined like seven of the biggest festivals in the UK. Twenty fifteen. Yeah. 
Rolling Stones headlined Glastonbury. Mm. I headlined the other stage. Did you? In 15? Second biggest stage. Yeah. And Glastonbury's obviously got 40 stages and 2,000 acts. Yeah. But, um, 200,000 people. Yeah. No, it's actually more. Because yeah. I, I think there's like, they, they don't tell, tell you the 50,000 staff that were in there. there. Yeah. And then every band gets to bring between five and yeah, 20 ten, guests. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But I had, I had 15 mates that were yeah. camping all weekend. Yeah. Um, what's, the, what's the pinnacle? Is there something that stands out in your mind out of these festivals that you've done? Is there something you go, you know what, that's, that's the one that really stands out? I mean, look, the best gigs are always Scotland and Ireland because they're just all bonkers. Like, yeah. They're just mad for it. <laughs> like, they're the perfect gig crowd because yeah. they're responsive yeah. and they're loose as. Yeah. And, the, you know, they, they, just, they just give back. Yeah. They just like, can't believe you're there performing yeah. for them. Like, you know, every Glasgow gig, like, that's why my Glasgow gigs just sold out like that because yeah. they know I'm going up there to just deliver the best night out. I'm yeah. not playing, you know, 30% new songs to please me. Yeah. I might play two new songs out of 40. Yeah. I'm going to give them the best night yeah, and quality. the best experience. But that's, yeah, what you, think... that's what you did for us at Bournemouth Sevens. Yeah. We had that place jumping. Yeah. Amazing. But I have them jumping from the first song. Yeah. Like Literally some the people, first song. I thought you were going to Some people up. start slow. Yeah, you and went then, straight in. Yeah. I try and, I just try and, I lift it to there and then it, you know, it just goes it, up and down yeah, a little yeah, bit yeah, and yeah. then by the end it's up there. Yeah. But yeah, we're, um, so what festival stands out to you in the UK that you performed at? You go, yeah, that's what I'm going to tell my grandchildren. I think my, my favourite ever festival moments were probably um, the other stage at Glastonbury yeah. up against Rolling Stones. Rolling Stones were the only band to headline Glastonbury who told the BBC their set couldn't be televised. Is that right? Because they're so all yeah, about yeah, that, aren't about they? Pound note, yeah. Well, you think, if you, can, if you compare like your Ed Sheeran's and... Elton John's who are happy to live in the UK and pay UK taxes yeah. versus the Rolling Stones yeah. who want to travel around the world, yeah. you know, non-domicile. Yeah. And... yeah, 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 yeah. So, so, I mean, that's up to them. Imagine doing that though and then still voting Tory. It's a bit weird, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's perfect. Um, but yeah, I, um, that was, that really stood out for me, especially because any of everyone who tuned in on around the world to watch Glastonbury, Rolling Stones, was, they were like, Oh, we're really sorry, um, Rolling Don't Stones it. don't want to be televised. So we're going to go to the other stage where you can then watch this bloke example. <laughs> but we, three of my albums went into the top 10 on iTunes the next day. Quality. Um, it was amazing. Um, but that really stands out. I mean, like, headlining Southwest 4. Clapham Common. Clapham Common. I mean, we had 30,000. It was like one of my, my biggest fees at the time. I don't usually talk about this stuff, but I know this, this is what your show's all yeah, about. I won't, yeah. I'm not going to tell you how much, but it's just crazy to think that at 12 years old, I was playing five-a-side football badly on yeah. Clapham Common yeah. with my mates from school running yeah. away from kids with knives and yeah, stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then you're back there, you know, 30 years later. Yeah. Well, tw 20 years 20 later. 20 years later, yeah. Headline the festival. I had some mates from school in the crowd. One of them... Um, actually went on to, he was one of the first uh, black uh, pilots for British Airways. Yeah. Like, well, the, no, the youngest ever black pilot mm. to work for British Airways. Mm. There's another fellow who had done really well in uh, finance from school. He come from a really rough estate. Mm. And there's another fellow who just got out of prison. They're watching me. But they're all my mates from school. Yeah. And they're all side of stage for a bit and out in the crowd watching me in Clapham right, Common. Yeah. And if you think Clapham Common, one of my mates was from, from Fulham. I was from Fulham. Yeah. Another one was from Brixton, one from Batsy. Yeah. Clapham Common's right in the middle. That's the in-between, And it? they're just like, e, yeah. e, man, like, what? Yeah. You know, looking yeah. out. What's that feeling like for you before you go on stage? Do you get nervous? Um, honestly, no. I can't wait to get out there. But I will be honest, before Creamfields the other week, I was really nervous. And the reason for that is... The gap. 
Yeah, it was like, it had been 18 months since I played the UK. Yeah. I was also, even though I'm usually quite confident and a bit cocky about how well the show's going to go, yeah. that's only if there's people there. My fear at Creamfields was I'm up against Eric Prids, Andy C, um, Jamie Jones and the Chemical Brothers. Oh my God, so you're thinking... Well, I'm thinking... You're thinking like a promoter, going, yeah. hold on a minute, I'm up against these on different stages. Mate, I, hope, I hope everyone turns up on mine. I think, mate, I think... Even I, though you're going to get I paid I think like lump. an artist and a businessman and a promoter at the same time. You know, yeah. even when I'm posting an advert on... an advert, when I'm posting the reels yeah. on Instagram, yeah. I'm thinking what a fan's going to react to. Yeah. So that's... I don't know if you saw my... I did a reels last night, which is basically me talking to camera as if I'm being interviewed, almost like The Office, like yeah, David Yeah, that's Friend. what I did too. I'm yeah. just like... You know, Oh, doing a festival, are we? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, just here. And then it just, just, yeah, and it just <laughs> cuts to, yeah, 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 and then yeah, it's yeah. just like, yeah, it usually starts off with a bit of, because <laughs> I'm like, that's where I feel my shows are, yeah. frantic. Yeah. So like, that's how my marketing should that's be. That's interesting. You're thinking like a promoter. Though. As soon as we get a professionally edited video, it yeah. absolutely bombs. Yeah. My, my fans like it all to feel like Real. it's come straight from me. Yeah. I find that fascinating because you know you're going to get your lump anyway, whether there's no one there or it's rammed. Mm. You're thinking against the other people performing, Am I, are they going to come and see me? Well, we did. We had a 7,000-capacity 7, tent absolutely rammed That's with about 1,000 people outside. And the best thing about that is Creamfields is a festival known for DJs. Yes. And I'm, I'm obviously... In, in, in America, they think I'm a DJ. So we got DJ example. example. <laughs> it's Australia as well. Australia yeah. is like... Uh, yeah, mate. Example, DJ examples here. I'm like, I'm not fucking DJ. The, the guy, what I'm you the guy with a mic. MC or a rapper? What would you put I, yourself I, as? I just, I, I, just, I see myself more as like a singer songwriter. Yeah. Like rapping's a small part of what I do. I know, I think I do it really well. I'm, I put a lot of time and effort into my raps because it's quite a competitive thing. I feel yeah. like rapping's a bit like boxing. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's all about the practice hours, yeah. putting it in, and and that's what hardens you and sharpens you yeah. and makes you like on point. Because it's all about rhythm as well yeah. and timing and reading the beat like you're reading an yeah. opponent. And I used to box from when I was 15 to mm. 21. So there's, that's where that comes from. But um, I, I just love the discipline of rapping. Like my last album, which came out last summer, which I put out purely just for fun. I, didn't, I wasn't expecting much of it. I did an album called Some Nights Last for Days. And it was a written, that whole album was written in lockdown in Brisbane. I released it in August. Just a purely a rap album for my diehard fans. A lot of people was like, it's your best album ever if you okay. love because it was almost like my early stuff, but yeah. way more refined. Yeah. But I feel that that album was like my training for the one I've just written. So my mm. eighth album, which is going to come out next year, is completely finished. It's mainly UK Garage and Drum and Bass. Mm. Very energetic album. But I think it's the best songwriting and rapping I've ever done. And that's as a result of the album I did last year, which was like going to the gym. Yeah. Like we're going back and refining yeah. my wordplay and my lyrical skills yeah. and my melodies and the pockets that my verses sit yeah. in. Because I'm like... I, I, when I'm making music, I, I, it's all about, obviously rapping's all about rhythm, but I love the discipline of playing the drums. I love the discipline of skipping. Mm. I love the discipline of the boxing mm. speed bag. Mm. Like these things, yeah, I've got one in my garage and that's purely because sometimes my brain's got too, too much energy, too much information and I don't know what to do and I'm not yeah. going to be able to sleep at night and I can't concentrate on my kids. Yeah. So I just go down and do half an hour on the speed yeah. bag or half an hour skipping. Yeah. And that, I need rhythm. Everything, yeah. I don't know if you see, but I'm constantly tapping yeah, yeah, my toes. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, very, I'm very, I'm a hyperactive person, yeah. but I need to, I rein it in through fitness and training. And, and get focused. Just, yeah. Laser focused. Exactly. Mm. So and that me. allows me, so well, I don't listen to music when I go for a run. Mm. That's my thinking time. That's how I'm going to. You listen to my podcast, don't you? Yeah, I've listened to it a few times, actually. <laughs> but what I'll do is I'll go for a run and I, that's my time to think about 
a marketing plan, yeah, an organic marketing plan yeah. that I can create, Same. or an edit, mm. or a new song, or the music video for a song. I go for a run and start visualizing. Mm. I don't listen to the song, but the song I'm just rolling in my head. Mm. So that's kind of like my my me time. So what is that? How, how do you earn a pound note these days? Because it's a lot harder to earn money on Spotify and iTunes and everything else. Is it all about live gigs for you? It's like probably 80% of my income is live. Yep. Um, and, you know, I pay my agent. I pay, uh, agents usually take between 5 and 15%. I've got a good deal with my agent. Of every fee. So of every fee. Let's call it 10%. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So straight away, you know, so let's just say you're, you're playing a festival, you're getting 100 grand. Yeah. Agent takes 10%. Yeah. Uh, managers take between 10 and 20. Mm. I've got two managers who, who share the percentage. Some managers take 20% of net. Some take 20% of gross. Yep. Depends. Um, some are tied down to contracts. So even if you leave your manager, your manager earns for a few years after they leave you. Is that you. right? Who's, I, ad, who's advising people? I don't, I've, sign ne- I've never signed no. a contract with management. No. I just say to them, I'm like, I'm a man of my word. I'm going to pay on. you. Yeah. If you don't believe me, then I don't want to work with you now. Because yeah. this, this is this whole relationship, we've got yeah. to be like a family. Yeah. We've got a unit. I've never signed a management contract in my yeah. life, and I would advise people not to. Yeah. And I always meet young artists and just say, if they want you that badly, they need to show you what they can do for you. Yeah, it's not like, imagine you like you just signed a new artist. What's that new artist going to earn that year? Four grand? Mm. Or you're going to invoice 20% mm. on four mm. grand? Mm. It should be, be the case of like, let me show you what a good manager I'm, yeah. I'm, I am. When, I, when I earn you 50 grand yeah. a year, I'll invoice for it. Yeah not sign this contract now yeah, it's, fucking, yeah. it's a mug game yeah isn't it um but yeah like so you say you got 100 grand so your agent takes 10 percent. your management will take 20 percent. so now you you've got 70 grand mm. and then from your 70 grand you pay maybe for your tour bus or your uh your your transport you some people arrive in a tour bus some people come in three vianos some people have a, a lighting and effects truck. Mm. You've got the driver for the truck. You've got the people building the stage. You've got your lighting. You've got your riggers. You've got your visuals guy, visuals wall. You've got your flamethrowers. You've got your lasers. You've got your CO2 cannons. You've got your sound guy mixing desk. I now just have me and the DJ. So yep. I pay my DJ a nice fee because he's one of my best mates. He's yep. the best man at my wedding. He's got yep. two kids. Yeah. Um, DJ Wire? DJ Wire. Yep. So like, I'm not earning 100 grand a gig at the moment. Mm. I want to get back there. Yeah. But say I was, if I was earning 100 grand a gig, Cut it in half. Cut it in half and then I pay tax on that. And then half again. Yeah, tax. well, I pay tax in Oz now, which is okay. 30%, which is way better than yeah. what I was... 50% 50, here. 55%. 55%. So, but yeah, say you get 100 grand yeah. for a gig as an artist, you're probably taking 25 grand out. Yeah, after tax. Yeah. Mm. That's that's where it is. That's mm. where it sits at. But imagine you're in a band and you get 100 grand a gig. And you're splitting that between four. So you get 100 grand for the gig, yeah. but you're splitting 25 grand yeah. four ways. Yeah. What's that, 7,000? Yeah, it's not a lot right. on 100 Gs. <clears throat> Tell me about Ed Sheeran. Um, what would you good want to mate, know? Good mates with him? Yeah, great friends. I, I remember seeing something years ago. I don't know what year it was. I saw it? him last week, actually. Did I always you? go, I, I go to obviously have a catch up. I wanted to meet his daughter for the first time. Go and watch Ipswich. Uh, is it Ipswich or Norwich? <laughs> is Ipswich. <laughs> I think I wouldn't be surprised if we ended up buying Ipswich yeah. one day. I think he's, he's the club he's sponsor. He's sponsor, he? shirt sponsor. Yeah, but he's, um, he's a mad list. I was holding his baby daughter. Um, and he's signing CDs, signing CD singles because he wants a number one so badly. He's willing to sign a CD single because he knows fans are buying them because they've been signed by him. Yeah. And one CD single actually counts for two sales in today's market. Is that right? So he's he's, he's still that hungry, even though I'm just like Ed, relax, mate. Yeah. You're the biggest artist in the world. Yeah. He's still there signing CD Fair singles, play. and Fair I'm play. holding his baby, and I'm trying to play <laughs> my new demos. I'm like, mate, what do you think of this one? But yeah. to be fair, he's no, I don't like this one. Skip this one. Yeah. Oh no, leave this. 
This one's sick. Yeah. This is the best song you've done in ages, mate. It'll tell you straight. I'll tell you straight. It'll tell you straight if it's shit. It'll tell you if, it, if, it, tell you if, it's shit, yeah. tell you if it can be improved. It'll tell you if it's pointless even releasing it and he tells you everything. Is he it's amazing. a genius, is he? Yeah. Yeah. I played him songs where he knows within the first 40 seconds that it's a massive hit. Is that right? Is it true he's not on social media or not got a mobile phone or something? Someone he doesn't have a phone and he's, he keeps encouraging me to not have a phone. Yeah. Um, but I need one. Yeah. Especially when I'm. When you're promo. I think that there's certain, like, when you get to, say, a Coldplay level, Ed Sheeran level, you can fly around the world with your missus and your kids and your security and so on. Don't worry about a penny. Don't worry about a penny. I've flown over here in this pandemic. A, I had to get an exemption to leave Australia, which took ages. I took three attempts to get out. Why would I take my kids out of school when they've got a structure and a daily routine? And also it would have been £30,000 to fly me and my wife and kids over. Business. Obviously, I'm going to travel business because I'm not sitting in... Like for twenty hours, mm. I'm like at this stage of my life with my, you know, with the problems I've had with my body, with my back and my yeah. neck, and yeah. my, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not going to be sat in economy. No offense, mate. Tell me, tell me about your beautiful Mrs. Wife Erin. How on earth did you meet Miss Australia? She interviewed and definitely me. Definitely punching above your weight. Yeah, yeah she's probably the hottest, <laughs> hottest birds in the world for me. And everyone always comes up to me and just goes, "She's like." <laughs> Well, you know, a good friend of ours, Andy Ruin, yeah, yeah, yeah. he's just like, which is how we met. Yeah. He's just like, mate, every time he sees her or he sees me, he's just like, mate, she's, he goes, I tell everybody she's the best looking girl in the world and just the funniest, brightest, strongest, hardest. And kind. And she's, she's yeah. super kind, yeah. but she's also like, she, she went on SAS Australia. Did she? Celeb. She got to day 12 of 13. She weighs. And there was that men and women. Men and women, she, celebs, she weighs 58 kilos. Right. I think she was 65 when she went into the yeah, show. Yeah. Everybody else on the show was 90 to 110 kilos. You've got yeah. a female AFL player. Yeah. Um, big, like, big, strong girl, yeah. big lass. Um, a, a rugby union player and an Olympic swimmer who was six foot six. Yeah. And then a female rally car driver who was also a very, very tough cookie. Mm. And Erin kept up with all of them to, to the penultimate day. Why did she go on it? She went to prove something. She fancied it. She was, she was running. We live in Brisbane, but Brisbane's actually full of hills and little mountains. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. She was putting on her army boots, a 20 kilo backpack. Training. And running up and down mountains for two hours, like three, four times a week. And then doing strength and conditioning training where, with an ex-strong man at a powerlifting gym where she was just carrying 40 kilo Dumbbells in yeah, each hand, yeah. kettlebells, yeah. up and down, up and 50 down. meters, pushing uh, 70, 80 kilos sled. on a sled. Yeah. 70, 80 kilos. Yeah, 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 so she yeah. weighs 60. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Like, and she was doing that. And, mm. knew, like, and that's how she got so far, but also sheer determination. Mm. How did you meet her? She interviewed me on a radio show. Is that right? Was, we flirted for the whole thing. Did, you know, was, did you know when well, you... Well, I was just looking at her, just going, you're the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. Yeah. But I also thought, you're famous, you've got your own money, you've got your own self-worth. Yeah. Like, what do you want from me? Yeah. I'm just a funny-looking fella from England. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like she was, she had like three or four TV deals. She was sponsored yeah. by t- by Toyota, LG phones. Uh, remember, you know, Mambo, Mambo the yeah. brand, the, the sort of surf yeah. bikini brand. She mm. was the face of Mambo, the okay. Mambo goddess they yeah. called it. She had her own radio show. She had her own TV show. She had her own apartment in Bondi Beach. And I've got back, and I just said to my manager, I was just like Mick Shiner, my old manager. I was yeah. just like, That's that. I don't know what who what that is. <laughs> And he was just like, I know. <laughs> and then I looked on my Twitter and she'd messaged me, just like, lovely to meet you. I'm going to come watch you at the festival on Saturday. 
And then she came and watched me at the festival. Did you then, get back saying, mate, I'll get your VIP back past Well, when I'm, then I got, I got, a, I said to this fellow, I was just like, mate, I've just come on stage, give me a lift to VIP. He was like, why should I give you a lift? And I was just like, mate, I'm, just, I'm one of the artists. He went, yeah, it's my festival. And then he laughed. And yeah, then he yeah, went, come yeah. on, mate, I'll give you a lift. Yeah. I was like, there's this girl in VIP, I need to bring her back. He was just like, come on, mate, I'll sort you out. So driven up, arrived in this golf buggy, he just waved at her. She's come over, sat in the golf buggy next to me, like, both giggly, <laughs> both had a few drinks. Yeah. And then I was just like outside dressing room and I was just like, I was chatting to her mate. I was just like, she's just the fittest girl I've yeah, ever seen. Yeah. She was just like, you two are going to get married. I went, what? She was just like, she just really likes you. And I was like, we don't even know each other. She was like, go over and kiss her now. I went, all right. <laughs> so I just gone over and I went, can I kiss you? And she's just going, yeah. And then we were just fucking like kissing, in, kissing for about three hours. Really? <laughs> side of stage, at a rave. Yeah, yeah. Went back to her, her place, stayed up all night listening to music and chatting. And then she dropped me at the airport the next day and she started crying. She was just like, I was like, why are you crying? She was like, I just don't know if I'm ever going to see you again. I was like, are you kidding? We're going to get married. Did she, you say that? Did you, yeah. say, did you say that? Quality? Yeah. And then she called her mum and went, I just met the man I'm going to marry. Oh, wow. What and year was this? 2011. 11. Never looked back. Mate, that's amazing. Came back to the UK, just like, I had a, like a few birds I was seeing. I was just like, sorry. See ya. <laughs> like, I mean, I was nice about it, yeah. but I was just like, I don't want to lie to you. I don't want to be a cheater and a, yeah. you know, the person I was in the past with my ex. I don't want to be that person. Yeah. That's not me. That's not the way I was raised. Yeah. You know, I was raised by, to respect women and be a gentleman. Yeah. So, and then she came to visit two weeks later. Then I went back to visit her in Bondi three weeks later. And she came back again. Then we met in Abu Dhabi. Then I spent five weeks with her in Bondi over Christmas, New Year's. Then I didn't see her for a month. Then I met her in Australia again. And then in June, the following year, she moved to the UK. Oh, she moved to the UK for she you? She moved to the UK for me, gave up everything. Wow. That's why I'm forever in debt to her. She gave mm. up her whole career to make sure that our relationship worked. That's quality. And then I proposed that uh, Halloween, uh, October the 30th. She was, like, no, she was like, why are you proposing on Halloween? I was like, come out on the balcony. There was loads of fireworks going on. She was like, did you arrange them? I'm like, no, it's Halloween, free fireworks. Yeah, free fireworks. <laughs> <laughs> Win-win. Gave her, gave her a ring. She was like, where'd you get this from? I was like, I don't know. She was like, the diamond's beautiful. The ring's disgusting. I went, well, we'll get it remade. <laughs> but that's her attitude is just like me. Mate, we're just... Well, from what I see, mate, it looks like you get on properly well. Yeah, we're just both, a couple, of, we're both a couple of nerds. Yeah. Like, you know, Having I'm, fun. I'm, a, I'm a, math, a math nerd. She's a science freak. She's so so clever when it comes to science. Like, she studied zoology for a mm. bit, you know. Um, and we both love fitness and training. Mm. And we're both just absolute geeks. We just mm. spend the whole day just like giggling about stupid yeah, shit. That's cool. We're just like, I, I, we always say like, people's like, how did you get on? I was like, well, I've married my best friend. Yeah. And I'm like, we're just, we're both a couple of idiots, really, who just like, just love goofing around all day Same. and love fitness, Same. love food. Yeah. Same here, mate. You know my what I mean? wife, yeah. And um, it's just it's like, nice, isn't it? And ra yeah, I'm raising yeah. kids with it. Though. It's just like, it's a nut house. Yeah. Every morning, every evening, like before school and after school, it's a complete nut house. Madness. And we love it. <laughs> Tell me about your touring around Europe. What are your favorite countries? I love, touring. I love Germany. Why is that? I just love the German culture because it's very similar to UK in a lot of ways, but then also really different. Yeah. Um, Berlin's an amazing city. Yeah, big warehouse parties. Everywhere. Yeah, love Berlin's it. just like amazing, like, like the fashion, the food scene, like they're very sharp. Everyone speaks perfect English. Everything's really precise, the precision, everything works, everything's functional. Yeah. Like, you know, it's kind of like London without all the... All the bollocks. Yeah, yeah. Um, I love Barcelona. Just love the the climate, the people. Everyone's beautiful. Barcelona's amazing. Everyone's basically. beautiful, yeah. aren't they? 
And on the beach as well. On the beach and the the amazing bars and restaurants and the architecture in Barcelona is just absolutely bonkers. I love um, Prague. Eating and eating and eating in Barcelona. Yeah. Prague's amazing. Yeah. Not if you're in a couple, probably better no, than single. Say the <laughs> <laughs> um, Enough said. <laughs> yeah, and um, Eastern Europe. Like I've been so big in Eastern Europe. Like in, well, it's not necessarily. Give me Eastern some Europe, countries. Like Lithuania, Latvia, Slovenia, Slovakia, Czech Republic, Hungary, Finland. Like I mean, I, no, not Finland's not really Eastern. Estonia. Yeah. All those countries I was massive in. Like, and you've nailed all those countries. I've headlined festivals in all of them. Have you? Give me an example how that would work. Someone just getting con- the promoter getting contact with. Your agent say we want him out here. Yeah, and you just cut a, do, cut a deal. Do they pay your flights? What sort of ride did you ask for? Did they don't use. They don't. Have, no one ever pays for flights. It's uh, called a landed deal. Yeah. So it's a uh, you know they'll sort your ground transport and hotel, and then your fee, and then your flip. So summertime you'll do the UK festivals. Will you in between that flip into Eastern Europe? Yeah, I mean not not since the pandemic, but next summer we'll probably be looking at say ten UK and Ireland festivals. So like yeah. one in Scotland, one in just outside Dublin, say six or seven in UK, maybe two big ones, five medium-sized ones, you know, like so your big ones, your 60, 70, 80 thou, yeah. and then your medium ones, you know, 20, 30 thou. Yeah. And then we'll probably try and do a few Ibithas, Mallorcas. Where would you play in Ibiza? Um, probably like Eden's more my market yeah. now because yeah. every every other uh, venue is very much geared towards DJs. That's a big Eden's, old capacity as well, isn't it, out there? Yeah. Eden's, Eden's more like... I'd probably play like a bass night. Yeah. You know, it'd be like a drum and bass, bass house sort of like, cause there's still that market for it. There's not really, apart from Stormzy's festival at Ibiza Rocks, there's not really anything that would be close to what I do. Yeah. Because most people are just there to hear DJs. They don't mm. want people on microphones. Because mm. it's like, it don't really go with the territory on Ibiza. Yeah, Everyone's yeah. very like, trippy and happy and yeah. away with the fairies. I don't want someone going, fucking hell, you're yeah, mosh pits. <laughs> Whereas I could probably get away with a show at Eden. Um, I'd probably do a few in Greece. Um, Austria is really strong for me. Hungary strong. Finland, Estonia. These are sort of like strongholds for me that I've always played like every summer. Portugal has always been quite good for me. Mate, you've, um, had, a, you've had a proper eventful life, haven't you? Yeah, mental. Yeah, I've, played, I've played gigs in, I've played 1,270 something gigs in 62 countries. Is that right? Yeah. Wow. I'm on my eighth album. And how many, <laughs> have you ever got, do you ever get a point when you I'm a doctor. When you're, and a doc. <laughs> Have you ever had a point before you go on stage? You think I feel too fucked. Um, a few times. So there was there was a period in probably 2014, 2013, I think I was about to headline Global Gathering and I hadn't slept for two days. And I was really, really disappointed in myself. Like what post? Yeah. Post event. Yeah, I'd somehow got through the gig. It was a 75 minute slot. I was compl- I mean, I was I was so fit at the time in between festivals. Yeah. And I used to eat well and I used to get plenty of sleep during the week. You know, I'd, I'd go to bed at 10 and sleep till 8 a.m. So I, was, I think the only reason that I probably didn't die or that I didn't, you know, miss any festivals mm. was probably my core fitness yeah. and mentality. Um, I, but I also used to, you know, even when I was behaving like an idiot and, you know, I didn't do it often, but it was probably like three occasions during that period where I'd been up all night and then went, went and did the show still on no sleep. and. You kind of just go, if, if, you, if you're going to, you know, if, you, if you're going to play hard, yeah. you've also got to be prepared to mm. deliver. And then was, after that, I kind of really slowed down. What was that like, feeling like? For instance, like? Like, I'd just be like, I'm going to go on stage. Before I go on stage, I'll have a rum and coke or a gin and tonic. Yeah. Not, I'm going to have seven drinks. Yeah. It's just not fair on the fans. Yeah. Even though 
there was never anyone like any feedback where it would be like, oh, I can't believe I paid to see you. You were too fat. Yeah. It was because I got away with it because my show was all about high energy. Yeah. So I could come on. But shouting. you know, in your own heart afterwards. Yeah, and I was yeah. really, really disappointed in myself. And I didn't really think that I'd let anyone down other than myself mm. and my fans, maybe. I just well, I just thought I can give them a better show. So now I will I will have one beer before a gig. Yeah. Like Creamfields, I got a bit too excited. I think I had a beer and a gin and tonic, mm. but I was nervous as well. And then I went on and shouted too much and lost my voice and had to cancel Manchester Pride the next day. Is that right? And then it was again, it was another good lesson in terms of I mean, I was backstage at Creamfields. I was doing so yoga. So when was this? A couple of weeks ago? Three weeks ago. I was yeah. doing yoga. Yeah. Um, I was doing my vocal warm-ups. I was. I had cleared the dressing room. I had my headphones on. I was going over the lyrics to new songs. I was meditating almost. Nice. Um, but I'd still, because it was my first gig back, I got too excited and lost my voice just from, I reckon the last 15 minutes of the gig, it was an 80-minute show. Can you feel it? Could you feel it coming up? I could losing? feel the voice going. Oh. And I came off stage and I was a bit like, that was a good gig, wasn't it? It's a great gig. What did you have to do the next day? Phone the promoter of Manchester Pride? Yeah, well, I literally got on the phone to them and they could hear. But and you know the mad thing is, it's like, I'm there going, <laughs> like, I'm so sorry. I, I, could, I was like, you want me to come over? I got an excuse. I'm holding your hands for She was just like, Elliot, don't worry. Like, you just go on and yeah. have some rest. It's a shame. But I was like, and again, as a lesson learned, it was like, Probably, you know, looking at it from a position of being match fit, I wasn't drunk when yeah. I went on stage at Queen Falls. I wasn't fucked throughout the set. Yeah. I was actually, I felt sharp. Yeah. But I, I should have, and as a professional, if I was in the middle of a, a run of summer shows, say 30 gigs. You'd pace yourself. You'd pace yourself. Yeah. And you'd also know that even when you were about to start shouting, to tell yourself to hold back because you, you need your voice for the next day. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I really do try and treat all these things almost like I think about it like an athlete sometimes. Mm. Like first thing I do on a Monday after a weekend of gigs is I have this fellow come around. He's incredible set of hands. He's like an osteopath, but yeah. he does Cairo, he does needles, he does cupping, yeah. deep tissue massage. Because I have to treat my body like I'm 40 next year. Mm. And if you think like when football players have to stop at 34, mm. 35. I've had knee surgery, I've had ankle surgery, I've had Achilles tendonitis, I've dislocated my right shoulder. It's just like my body's like, if I want to do this for another 10 You've years. 1,200 shows. I'm not yeah. surprised. Yeah. 60 most, countries. 62 countries. Most <laughs> most of those sets were 75 to 90 yeah. minutes. And my show is. And you give it some as well, don't you? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of. I'm pretty much doing the equivalent of like skipping. Yeah. But left to right, left to right, whilst rapping and singing and occasionally some big leaps in the yeah. air. I mean, the reason why I got tendonitis back about 10 years ago was probably because I, I think I was wearing the wrong footwear. I was wearing like old school Adidas gazelles. Oh, yeah, the flat ones. The flat ones. Yeah. But there's no spring, but also the back of the shoes just would, would have been tapping yeah. your Achilles. Yeah. You know, the old school shoes. Yeah, just have yeah. that big... Yeah, I think they're better nuisance. Nuisance. Yeah. Whereas all new shoes have got it cut out. Yeah. Anyway, that was what went what, what, wrong. Tell, tell me what you put out the other day on Instagram. <clears throat> I had a look and you said... Uh, People aren't playing your tracks on radio. Yeah. Not, tell, me, tell me what's going on there. Well, we're pitching. This, my radio plugger's taking the new songs in. And it usually starts with a meeting. So each radio plugger might have three or four new songs from their label or their roster to play. So they'll sit down with so-and-so producer at Radio 1, Cap it FM, Kiss FM. Oh, example, example's back. Sign a new deal. You're going to love this song. It's yeah. a real banger. Although they don't say you're going to love it. Just listen to this. Have a listen, yeah. Oh, that's really good. Yeah. Yeah, so where do you think you could give it a spot play on breakfast? Or, you know, can we get Scott Mills to give it a little push? Or can we get Greg James? Or yeah. can we get Kiss Breakfast? 
Yeah, that's the thing. Like, I mean, the song's great, but I don't know. Where's the example fit now? Yeah. Well, don't worry about that. What's the song? It's a yeah. great song, isn't it? He's, he's just, he's on, his tour's just about to sell out. He's back in the country. He's packing festival tents. Yeah, I know, but he's nearly 40. Yeah, but you're playing Coldplay. Yeah, but Coldplay are like, you know, they're a British institution. Well, why can't example be? Yeah, do you know what? Come back to us in a few weeks with more stats. So no one's playing music based on whether it's a good song anymore. They're playing it based on we need to see how it reacts on TikTok or Spotify or Apple Music. Is that right? Or it's like, who's his, who's his demographic? Isn't, aren't, aren't his fans all 30? Well, no, his footage of his gig last week. 20 old. They're mostly 22. Mm. Mm. His average Spotify listeners is 23 years old. Mm. His average ticket buying price uh, person was 24. Yeah. 60% female. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, we'll keep, we'll keep an eye on it. Well, you don't need to. We've just told you the stats. <laughs> you, you said you liked the song yeah. and you weren't sure if he Crack fits your on. demographic yeah. and he fucking definitely does fit your demographic. Yeah. But it just, what it is... How, is, do, you deal, how do you personally deal with that? Because it must well, be like frustrating thinking, mate, it's a banger, just get it on. Well, what it goes to... Show, look, if, if I had a bit more radio support, that would in turn maybe help with streams because people go and discover the song. You know, they, they hear you on Kiss FM or Radio 1 then they go and add you to their running playlist on Spotify. Yeah. So that helps. And it would also help maybe review charting. But I've kind of resigned to the fact that I am going to sell out tours and, and play festivals for the next for the foreseeable future, regardless of whether radio get on board. But if we keep chipping away, there will be a moment where there is one song, whether it's who's produced it or the time when it's come out. It'll just pop. It'll pop. Yeah. Because, and that's where my head's at. Yeah. I have to start thinking like I did back in 2009, yeah. where I was just like, I'm really enjoying making music yeah. again and good things are happening all yeah. around me and there's a genuine love it. for me. Yeah. Fuck them. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, genuinely, like, there's there's a lot of people at radio now, like, if you think we had Zane Lowe and Pete Tong, you know, tastemakers, mm. people who dictated what the sound was, yeah. you know, based on what they heard in the clubs or in Ibiza or whatever or what was going on in the band scene in Leeds or Camden. Yeah. You know, and Zane Lowe was in touch with all that. Annie Mack was in touch with all that. Even Nick Grimshaw. Yeah. Nick and Annie have both gone now. So it's kind of, you, you think about radio, there's like, there's not many people left there now who have a free play. The power. Their, their, their show is pretty much entirely structured for them. Structured for them and, and you know, scheduled. Yeah. There's people scheduling So you songs. can't go and slip him some, something and say, hey, mate, Very difficult. On. Yeah. And, it's, and I think that's because radio is dying. Yeah. So the radio bosses are telling their programmers and producers to be more like streaming services. Right. So less chat between songs. Yeah. So it's pretty much only like Greg James now on radio yeah. who gets to actually say stuff yeah. between songs and have competitions and irreverent chat and phone calls. Yeah. Everyone else is just like, you're listening to blah, 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 blah. How are you doing? Oh, yeah, we've got a caller on the phone. Yeah, the weather's good. Here's the yeah. news. Here's another song. Yeah. It's going a bit more like Capital FM yeah. where the presenter isn't really allowed to have any personality. Just a guider. It's just a guider yeah. and an introducer for the song. Yeah. That was that. Now, coming up is this. Yeah. And, oh, we've got a text from so-and-so in Surrey who's having a good barbecue. Yeah. Bang. <laughs> that's the extent of the chat. Yeah. And that's because they're like, we, oh, we're losing out to Spotify. We're, we're going to be dead soon as mm. radio. So as a radio show, we need to be more like a, a Spotify playlist. And if there is going to be chat in between, it needs to be eight seconds long. Yeah. So I totally get why it's changing and why people might not have the faith to put my new single in, even if they like the song. But quite frankly, I'm not going to lose sleep over it. No, of course not. Plus, you must look at your following and go, oh, I, mean, I can bang it out to the following. Yeah. Also, I've been doing this 16 yeah. years now. Yeah. And people, and like most of my peer group have completely disappeared. Yeah. So I'm just like thankful to be here. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Elliot, I've thoroughly enjoyed this, mate. 
Right, all good. I've properly enjoyed. I know this. you knew a lot of this stuff anyway, but no, mate, this I is thought... good. This is all good. I've really, really enjoyed this conversation. I don't, and also, I just want to go on record as saying this: I don't usually talk about stats and percentages and it's money. It's nice, mate. I find it no, but it can be quite crass and a bit. Not the way you've put it no. across. Okay. The way you've put it across hasn't come across. I'm, hope, I'm hoping it is just like, is educational it's and educational. insightful to 100%. The listeners will be like, wow, that's how it works. Okay. Wow, is that how it works? A percentage, 60% women, 40%. What goes on your mind as a musician? Yeah. Well, because you, know? you, I know, because the, the main crux of what your show is, is about business and expansion and entrepreneurship. Absolutely. And, like, yeah, and so. people have had eventful lives. Which you certainly have with uh, 60 yeah. con- 62 countries. and Well, mate, that's, that's the mad thing was like the week that Kickstarts was number three in the charts, I was 30 grand in debt. And it was the first time I was actually like, this is going to, mm. you know, so I, I, I didn't buy a car or a watch. Yeah. I bought Good. a flat in Fulham for cash yeah. in 2011. Yeah. And then I went and bought an Audi RS5. Yeah, that was your thing. I was, yeah, yeah. I was like, I'm going to get a house. I'm not going to get a mortgage. I'm going to yeah. just get Own buy it. something. And then I'll go and get a stupid car. Yeah. You know what I mean? And then I bought another apartment for cash. Yeah. And I was like, I'm not going to get a McLaren and a Ferrari and a Lamborghini and a Porsche yeah. until I've got have you two. Have you got them? Well, I, I, have, I, you one, bought, have you bought fast cars? I have. I, I, so I'd, um, I've, I've still got my place in Fulham. I sold my place in Putney on the river to buy my house in Brisbane. But um, and we drive a Volkswagen Twilweg over there. Mm. But I had um, a 355... Um, a Mercialago Ferrari yeah Ferrari 355 which I, I made some cash on a Mercialago which I made some cash on uh, I had a McLaren which I lost some money on but it was 650 Spider. it was the best thing I'd ever driven I really? drove it I drove it every day it's like, it's in every, no in the UK okay and I had a, um, a Cayman GT4 which I made a bit of cash on because I was on the lucky enough to get on the exclusive list when it came out and then we had a nice deal with JLR so I'd have a F-Type and Aaron would have a Range Rover for you, mate. So we, we got to enjoy cars for a bit. And, you know, I probably made as much money on two cars as I lost on mm. the other two. Mm. But it was fun. Yeah, and it, I, I needed to scratch that itch. But yeah. I've never been a watches guy. No. I can appreciate a nice watch, but mm. I've, I'm, I'm more into art. Like, mm. I've, I'm more, I've got a you know, nice art collection now, like 50 plus pieces. You can earn on that, which is nice. Well, yeah, I just think if it gets to a point in 10 years and or five years and no one wants to listen to my music, I'll slowly start selling off bits of art. Yeah, mate. <laughs> Happy days. Elliot, thoroughly enjoyed this, mate. You've been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, mate. Lovely to have you on the show and I'll, uh, I'll catch you later. Yeah, man. Nice one, Cool. Good man.